and welcome to Galley Stories, stories of the Bering Sea and beyond, hosted by Mark Kaler. My name is Penka Jane, podcast deckhand and longtime listener. We'd thank you to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Here's today's catch. Hello guys, and welcome back to another installment of Galley Stories, stories of the Bering Sea and beyond. I am your host, Mark Kaler. And today we're sitting on the Northwestern with the infamous captain, uh, Captain Sig Hansen. How are you today, Sig? I'm good, thanks. Appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, it's been a while. You've asked me for quite some time to do this, and uh, one one thing or another, you know, I finally got around to it. So yeah, it's this will be fun. All right, well, let's dive into it. Where where were you born, Sig, and what was your earliest memories of being around the water? Well. Uh... I was born in Seattle, Washington. My my parents, both of them, are from a little town called Okaham, which is uh, Kalme, uh, and that's on the southwest uh, corner of Norway. And uh, so we got a real uh, uh, large Norwegian connection, you know, with community uh, from there. And you know, as we speak, we're sitting here in Ballard, Seattle, Washington. Uh, the boat is in shipyard, and we are in my galley, which, strangely enough, you know, you. You've got your galley stories, but, you know, starting from the beginning, I mean, as far as the Norwegian connection, that's where everything uh, started with me. Um, and uh, dad, when he was a young man, he came over here in 58 to Seattle uh, looking for work. Um, a lot of the immigrants from Norway, especially this one little part, this one little town or community rather, uh, a lot of the guys uh, ended up right here in Seattle, Washington, in Ballard, where we're at right now. Um, and this community is, uh, w you know, fishing-based. And back then, it was much more so than it is today. And guys were just looking for work. You know, the herring industry had collapsed in Norway. And if you're a young man, you either went to the East Coast, out to New Bedford, you know, uh, or you ended up kind of here. And, and back then... A lot of these guys, uh, you know, as far as a green card or, or and all that, uh, you just needed someone to sign for you, to vouch for you. So, you know, strangely enough, a lot of the guys that uh, from dad's community, where mom and dad are, are born and raised, uh, came from there, and they just kind of ended up here, one after the other, you know. And dad was looking for uh, work, uh, you know, just halibut fishing is what he was looking for. There was no real king crab industry or any king crab boom um and so when he got over here he uh you know they were him and his friend tom who ran the northwestern for many years it's tremendous fisherman anyway tom christensen so uh the story goes they were run out of money couldn't find any work because there was always work, but a lot of the guys from the northern part of Norway were in control of the halibut industry back then in the 50s. And so, uh, you know, they're, they're here in Ballard, and there's a place called Ballard Avenue where all the pubs and the bars are. And, like, uh, when, when Dad vouched for my Uncle Carla come over here, you know, uh, he was a young man. They're like, well, you don't go to Ballard Avenue because that's where all the drinking and all the all that stuff goes on. And first thing he does, get off the plane. And, of course, he's going to tell the taxi, I'm going to Ballard Avenue. You know, and, and not just because there was all the young guys and all the fun and, and, and all that, but it, because that's where you found work, you know, in, in a lot of these bars. Smoke Shop being one of the places which was historical, in my mind, for, for that generation. So, uh, story goes, uh, the old man, my father, Sveri Hansen, 
and Tom Christensen, they were beating the docks, you know, 20 something years old. And uh, he, he, uh, uh, he had borrowed money from my grandfather to, uh, to uh, make the trip over here. And uh, they were running out of dough, you know. And so uh, they're running out of dough and then they're thinking, well, Jesus, if we can't find work, what do we do? You know, we got to find our way back or, or maybe go to the East Coast, do something. And uh, so, so Tom, who's very conservative, very uh, gentle man, he's like, well, we got to eat too, you know. What should we do? We got to have food. And so he's like, should I go buy some bread? And, and you know, so we got some food. And then dad said, uh, well, why don't you just go down to the corner and get a bottle of Thunderbird wine? And we'll start there. And so... Uh, Tom's like, okay, you know, and goes and gets this Thunderbird wine, which is garbage, right? It's, evidently, that's the pretty cheap stuff that you could get, cheapest at the time. <laughs> so he, he goes and buys the wine, and uh, of course, they get to have a few nips, and, and in my opinion, if I knew my dad right, he probably was getting a little more flambo flamboyant. I think that kind of runs in the family after, after a little bit of lubricant. And so they ended up at the at one of the bars down here on Ballard Avenue. Uh, next thing you know, they probably weren't afraid to ask for work. They probably were a little more aggressive. They probably had more courage. And before you knew it, they got a job uh, on one of the boats out here halibut fishing. That's all it took. And it's funny, you know, Dad always said, well, if it wasn't for that Thunderbird wine... Uh, you know, I would have never made it in the fishing industry. In other words, that altered the course of his life. So he always joked about that. And then, uh, anyway, you know what? Saying that, I'm going to fast forward into another story that, that uh, is similar to that before I move on. But I just got to say this now. So, you know, here we are many years later after uh, our family's been established and uh, in the fishing industry. <laughs> Next thing you know, these guys from original productions come around. The guy's name is Tom Beers. He owned the production company. He was pitching a show to a little uh, network called Discovery Channel. So he had heard about this crab fishing uh, in Alaska, and he'd heard about all these crazy stories, and he thought it can't be true. And then he uh, ends up going on one of the boats, the Fierce Allegiance, you know, which is a well-known boat, and uh, Message owned the, uh, still owns the boat, I think, and and uh, Tony LaRusso, I think, was the captain, and, you know, good guys. Anyway, and very aggressive, you know, big name. And so he, uh, he had done a trip with them and taken some footage, and then, of course, he had to find cast members, if you want to call it that, or people to participate in his, his new idea. And so uh, he's in Seattle, and he's beating the docks. That means that you're walking the docks, looking for, when you're beating the dock, it means you're looking for work. So basically, Tom was beating the docks, but he was looking for work for him, for his show, his potential show, his idea. And then, uh, <laughs> you know, he's, you know, uh, talking to all these different uh, uh, captains and owners and, and uh, a lot of family-owned boats, and, you know, he's, he's uh, interviewing these guys. Next thing you know, we're the last guy on the list. And it was just through word of mouth, and we happened to be in town. <coughs> so anyway, he was going to go back to, you know, Los Angeles, 
uh, and, he, and he had, they had time for one more interview. We were the last ones. And there was a lot of guys that were on the show that aren't there now. There were some guys that could have been on the show but chose not to do it. Um, so when he met the Hanson brothers, which is myself, Norman, and, and Edgar, uh, uh, Dad had already passed away at this time, and, uh, and we were gearing up to go fishing. And so his, I heard they want an interview, and I thought it was just going to be an interview. You know, like, who are you? Tell me about yourself. I had no idea what they, their concept was. So they end up interviewing uh, us down here in Ballard. And, um, uh, of course, they were like three hours late. And so we were in one of the pubs uh, in Ballard, very similar to my father. And I got to be honest when I tell you, uh, you know, this we're talking 16, 17 years ago on the first pilot. So I was a different person back then. So were my brothers. And I'm not lying when I say if someone would ask me, hey, can I get a picture? I'd be shy. If someone said, give me an interview, I wouldn't do it. You know, I mean, we were very, we grew up very, very conservative, very uh, with, with respect for people. And... Uh, and just camera shy, which is strange because Norman, he's the best photographer around and he knows everything about video, but trying to get him on TV is like pulling teeth. Uh, you know, the, I, the old saying in our family is, you know, uh, Norman got the brains, uh, Edgar got the looks and I got the mouth. So uh, from my father. So anyway, uh, we agreed to the interview or meet these guys, didn't have a clue what they're about. We get, uh, you know, after three hours, well, what do you think we're going to do at that time? And we're in this area. We're going to have a couple of, of beers or whatever you want to call it. Sodas. <laughs> Sodas. And uh, actually, I was, I had my, uh, uh, I drink vodka Coke or I, you know, have drank vodka Coke, which is Norwegian champagne. That's another story. But uh, next thing you know, uh Three hours go by, whatever, and similar to my father and Tom, we were f feeling pretty uh, energetic, a little more confident, and uh, not as fearful, and we had no idea that we were going to be on tape. So they take us down to the water, uh, we're down there, and they put this big camera on us and sat us next to each other and wanted to hear our life story and the whole hoo-ha. Well... Because of the fact that uh, we didn't show any fear in front of the camera or the interview, and because we were being ourselves, because we forgot about all of our own paranoias and our own insecurities, you know, we start picking on each other, and I'm jabbing my brothers, and they're jabbing me, and we're going at it, like brothers do. And then all this footage goes to Los Angeles. Next thing you know, they're like, we want you guys. And I'm thinking to myself in a very sober state, why would they want us? And then, uh, and then it dawned on me, had it not been for Ballard, had it not been for that Thunderbird wine, I would have never been on a program which has lasted uh, now 17 years and, and still going strong in over 100 countries. The same as my father, had it not been for that, probably wouldn't have been here in Seattle and been established as one of the pioneers in the Alaska crab fishery. And I love it because, you know, I've always wanted fishing to be a legacy and, and, and in my life, which I'll talk about. But 
always wanted something else as well to show what I have done for my own personal legacy on the side, so to speak. So it's just kind of a funny story to me because uh, it's amazing what a bottle of Thunderbird wine can do. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. What, what about, let's get back to uh, some of your earliest childhood memories of coming down in the boat with your dad. Well, that's just the thing, you know, when, uh, when the, uh, dad succeeded to get work here uh, off the coast of Washington, um, you know, there was, uh, there was uh, a lot of cod fishing and, and uh, halibut, things like that, salmon, of course. And, and so, you know, uh, it all boils down to what his uh, accomplishments were because he's always been my hero. Naturally so, right? Especially with a family business like we have. So anyway, uh, you know, he ended up uh, doing that. And of course, uh, time goes on. Uh, spent a couple of years in the military uh, uh, for the U.S. And uh, he had a job with a guy named Dan Lakita, who in his mind was legendary. Of course, he was legendary. And that's when they started uh, crab fishing in Alaska. Uh, and I think he started in 59 or something like that, 60, something like that. Anyway... Um, uh, he had been working on a boat called the Foremost, and I'd always heard about that boat, you know, growing up. And then, of course, uh, things went very quickly for my father. Uh, got into uh, a steel boat uh, with another partner. That was a California-built boat. Uh, that was the Steel Foremost. The other one was wood. And uh, I remember that boat really well. And so that's where my first memories are, because... Uh, you know, the boats were always down here in Ballard for repair, and that's where, you know, you'd go to with your father uh, whenever you could on weekends or during the summer all the time to uh, come down and, of course, paint and chip rust and do whatever you, you had to do, or what you were told to do, rather. And I think he probably did that for me just to uh, create a path or a mindset. I think that was his goal trying to teach you that, you know, it doesn't just come handed. You got to put some work into it. And I think uh, he was just showing us the ropes, you know. And I know a lot of these other families, it was the same way, you know, the, the Bundrant family, which is, you know, Chuck Bundrant, he owns Trident Seafood, same thing. He was always like, with, like that with his children. Um, and uh, it just, it's one of those work ethic things that, you know, I think you got to teach. And I think dad was very good at that. And, of course, being in the military for a while, uh, his methods might be a little more harsh than others or other people's methods. Um, so, yeah, first memory was uh, was uh, down here in Ballard. And then the foremost, that was always a big one. And, uh, uh, you know, th there was 14 of those boats built. And, uh, you know, they were meant for California waters. They weren't, <coughs> they were good crabbles. It was very speedy. It did about Jesus, I think that boat, he was telling me, did like 14 knots real fast. It had a bulbless bow. Um, and so I remember always coming down here on that. I never got to fish on that boat, which is probably a good thing because the son of a gun sank. And out of all 14 of those boats, every one of them went down. And you got to remember at that time, back in those days when uh, the king crab fishery, you know, there wasn't Baird Eye. You know, there was no Opelio seasons. There was no market that was established. So it was all about the king crab season. And, you know, when when those guys, uh, the, the pioneers started fishing for red king crab, 
uh, it was eight, nine cents a pound, you know. Now we're seeing 10, 11, 12 bucks a pound. Um, and so, and back then they would fish uh, off of Dutch Harbor. You know, they would go out uh, for day only, daylight, come back in every night and offload. Um, pretty much that's how it went because they didn't have the sodium lights like they have nowadays. You know, these big bright lights, we can go around the clock. And the sodium lights changed everything because now you could go farther you could stay out, you know, and and uh, and that type of thing. And the boats got bigger naturally, and so your capacity was more, and so you could venture farther. So when they say Dutch Harbor fishery and what those guys were doing, they were fishing around the islands. That's all they did, and they would they would fish, you know, all around the uh, the coast, Kodiak, all the way down the chain, and then way out west, you know. But they would just fish the islands near shore. They didn't venture out in the Bering Sea till later. And come back in every night and offload? Pretty, yeah. Like when my mom was up there, when she came to the country, you know, yeah, she'd go up and then stay uh, Carl Moses, who's a legendary figure in Dutch Harbor. I mean, she'd stay at Carl's place. And, uh, you know, you could always hear stories about how cold it was. And, you know, you could see through the walls, you know. It wasn't, uh, was not uh, Club Med here. But, uh, and she'd go out with him once in a while, too. Um, but there was no place for a lady either, and she would admit that. Um, at least back then. So, uh, yeah, they'd come back in every night offload. And, and of course, they had their uh, their little giddy-ups, you know. Uh, they went in Akatan and, you know, you'd hire some of the younger, the kids to offload your boat for you. Well, maybe you went and had a little, you know, uh, toddy or two. Thunderbird. Yeah, a little Thunderbird. And so, you know, there, there, a lot of that was going on. And they didn't realize at the time, what the industry was going to do, if it was going to be there forever, none of that. But they were just young men having a good time. And, and uh, that mentality is probably still there today, uh, depending on how mature you want to be. Mm -hmm. So, and rules of change, you know, you got to be nice. Uh, so I'm always envious of the fact that they uh, got away with a lot of stuff that you probably wouldn't get away with today. Um, so dad was always a hero of mine. And, and of course, uh, when he got the foremost, that was a very uh, proud moment. Uh, and then I think I was like 10 or 11, something like that. Then, the, you know, they were going across the Gulf. They were going to go fish uh, the new season. And, of course, this is when the lights were on. And, uh, you know, it was different, longer seasons. Um, and when she sank out in the middle there, uh, I know the old man was home, uh, a guy named Odvar Medhug. He was taking the boat up, and he was another one of my, I mean, absolute heroes. Just, uh, he was a screaming demon, got the job done, and he was just a go-getter. And remember, he, he's also from the same town that Dad was, and Tom, and all these guys. So this connection, and, and you know, I think, and Dad did vouch for him to come. And he was a young guy compared to him, and, and you know, you want guys that are hungry, and he was hungry. So he was always, always been a hero of mine. Um, anyway, uh, I remember it was right before we were going to go to school early in the morning and, uh, you know, got the news. I think, I'm thinking the Coast Guard. I'm not sure where the old man got the news from. And then he was, I remember him talking to my mother about it. And I just, I couldn't believe it, you know, because that was, the boat was everything, right? And in our cult, in our social order in our in our social system in our culture especially being you know Norwegian like that it has a lot to do with it because 
You know, they're speaking. Yeah, he was talking to somebody in Norwegian. That's right. Getting the story straight. And they, when the boat uh, uh, capsized, um, you know, uh, uh, everybody managed to survive which is just amazing. And they did get picked up by another guy that was in the area. I forget who now. Um, but you got to understand growing up, all we, at least in my mind, all I thought about, all, all our families talked about was fishing. From my grandmother and father to my mother, father, and everybody we knew. And you got to imagine, you know, like when the old man, my father was gone for months on end, uh, you know, my mother, you know, my first language was Norwegian, right? Uh, my first day of school, I get a note from the teacher, give this to your mom, you know, and the note said, you need to start speaking English in the house. Well, when she came over to the country, she couldn't speak English. And, uh, and all of the other women that were together with these fishermen from the same area of Norway, you know, they had their own little groups, right? And so, when they went out, they they were they were speaking Norwegian. They were together all the time, and so English was never a big priority for them because they had their 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 system, their social system, and their group, and and their friends, and other families, and all the other families were fishermen, with fishermen's wives and children, and you know you went to you went to church, and uh, you know right down here in Ballard, and I was born right here. Uh, in Ballard, where the boat is at now. Um, so, you know, that's you went to Sunday school, for crying out loud, and uh, it, half the kids were Norwegian descent. It was just because of this area, because this is the area where a lot of the Scandinavian influence came from, then, of course, you're going to settle here, and then you're going to, whether it's church or school, you're going to have that influence with you. And so even the kids that I grew up with that, that were you know, uh, my age or even younger, we'd speak Norwegian to each other or we knew Norwegian because our parents would speak it to us or me, we may respond in English, but they were all from fishing families. Every last one of them in our family, my cousins and everybody. So when I think back, it's real interesting. And then of course, what's the topic of the day, right? Fishing. You go to somebody's house, one of your friends, and you're, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, and there's pictures of boats hanging on the wall, right? It's like, that's dad's boat. That's, you know, this one and this one. You know, you see these big king crab, mounted king crab hanging on the wall. Every house you went to. I got one hanging in my house, for crying out loud. So, you know, that was just the, 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 the social order of things. And so, obviously, when you talk about fishing, I mean, honestly, before, most kids would go, I remember, hell, I remember the first day of school, and it was awkward. And, and you know, most kids would draw, uh, you know, mom and dad, or they draw a picture of a house, or, or something like that. I'm drawing pictures of freaking boats, you know? I mean, it's just, you know, when I think back, and... I remember even one of my high school reunions, a, a, a gal came up and said, said, hey, look at this picture. I said, what picture? She, she, she had it in her wall. She goes, you drew this for me when you were, you know, first, second, third grade, something like that. It was a picture of a boat. And somehow she kept it and she's going through her memoirs and she found it, you know. So 
I just think, uh, you know, that just shows you the, the type of lifestyle we had. And uh, I suppose if we were farmers, we'd be talking about potatoes or carrots, but that's just not how it is. And that's everything that in my life, even at a, as a young, young boy, uh, evolved around fishing. So when that boat went down, uh, the foremost, I mean, I, I remember I, uh, I had to go to school. You know, they forced me, didn't want to go. And when I, and when I walked into that, uh, I remember when I walked in there, uh, and I just had a breakdown. I mean, I lost it. I just stood there, bald like a little baby, didn't know what to, didn't want to be in school, uh, and, and just thought life was over. Boat's gone. So now what are you going to do? You got nothing. I already knew that. You're like 10 years old. Oh, Jesus, what are we going to do now? <coughs> Which is not the way a kid should be thinking, but that's how I thought. And uh, I remember them, uh, you know, I remember some lady, she's like, what the hell is wrong with you? And, and then they sent me home or, or something like that, or they, they took me home and uh, took the day off. <laughs> but uh, that was, you know, not traumatic. I don't know. I'm not going to. It was just one of those things that you remember. How big was the foremost? Uh, she was, I think she was 96 or 98 foot, um, which is pretty good for back then. And um, real speedy. Uh, they had the house, the windows, uh, you know, nowadays you, you have a, it's actually a Norwegian design where you have the, the if it's a house forward boat, you, the windows are facing forward, right? And, and that one was built with the window slanted back. And so when you have those windows, I forget the terminology, but when the windows are tilted back like that, uh, you, they, they break out real easy because when a wave comes up and over, it lands flat on those windows where when you got a house windows facing forward house forward boat with windows tilted forward like that uh the wave comes over crashes but then it actually kind of helps force that uh, inertia down yeah and it kind of forces it down and uh, keeps your windows intact so um anyway there were you know you got to remember that these pioneers uh, especially of my dad's generation you know they were anything that could float and could carry a pot, they were doing it, right? I don't care if it's a wooden scow or, uh, you know, a tuna saner or, uh, you know, a salmon, uh, uh, you know, uh, sane boat. They were using it and kind of refabricating these boats to fit their needs. So they were never built specifically for that industry yeah, or they what they did. bringing bender boats up from down in Louisiana and scallop boats and... Sure, and anything that could float, the, they the would Viking use. The Viking Queen came from the East Coast. There you go. Yeah. And well, that's Corey's old boat too, yeah. by the way. Yeah. And so you know, and 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 that's fine. It's just it's all about stability, which we take so seriously today because you know uh, uh, of all the loss of life we've had and and all that. But uh, you know, then stability. I mean, it was there. It wasn't a requirement. And so stability was a big part of, uh, of our growth as a fleet and an industry. And, uh, you know, I mean, there was guys that, uh, you know, you'd load your gear on, you're trying to get as many pots on as you could. And then you'd just look at the water line. All right, she looks okay and let's go. You know, that's not stability here. That's, that's just looking at the water line. There's boats that have left the harbor here and uh, didn't make it out past the freaking buoy and they, and they, they tipped over. So uh, anyway, that was kind of uh, kind of the way it was, and I thought life was over. 
uh, you know, and then, uh, what, a year later, right at that time is when things started ramping up uh, for the crab industry. So in the mid-70s, things were starting to look uh, look up. You know, the market was getting uh, much stronger. And, uh, you know, the, the for the price, the quotas, you know, the, they were going up and up and up. And so uh, guys were taking advantage of it. And right around that time, I mean... You could buy a boat here in Seattle and Ballard and, you know, you get on a list and they were pumping them out two, three, you know, four a month. I mean, they're just pumping these boats out, building them as fast as they could because the orders were coming in so fast because these guys were making money hand over fist because the market and everything, you know, the, the stars lined up and the market was there. And, uh, you know, you could have a contract on a boat uh and then it was slated to be built you know four months later or something like that and then you go down to the ballard avenue and and you might be having a thunderbird with one of these guys that had a contract and people would literally sell their contracts like yeah i got a boat being built in march and he's like well jesus i gotta wait till next june and he might sell his contract for two hundred thousand dollars more at that time and those boats were being built for, you know, around a million bucks, 900 million, 78, nine, they were, you're looking at a million, two, three, four, something like that, depending on the model and, and all that stuff. So, I mean, if, if you can sell a contract for 200 grand and you do the math, what that was back in 76, seven, eight, nine versus today, a lot of dough yeah. just for waiting for a couple of months. But guys didn't want to wait either because... Fishing was so hot, they wanted to get in on those seasons. And so, you know, time is money. So anyway, uh, that's about the time when Northwestern was built. Of course, uh, I was still a, a kid um, and real proud, you know, down here all the time, watching her being built the whole nine yards. Um, and uh, it was a lot of fun. The christening was a lot of fun. And back then, uh, I don't care, you know, our thing in our family was, of course, you know, we went to, uh, had to go to Sunday school, and then you went house shopping. <laughs> I mean, you go to these open houses, I was just, oh my God, because you're sitting in the back of an LTD, and uh, folks are smoking, the windows are rolled up, and you're, you're dying of, uh, you know, smoke inhalation. And uh, then you got to suffer through, first you got to suffer through Sunday school, church, and then you got to suffer through an open house. And then, typically, there uh, you'd end up going to a christening. So there was always a christening, you know, for a boat. When it was built brand new, they had the flags on and everything. They smashed the champagne bottle and said the speech. And and uh, that was always uh, fun, too. So there was, you know, that was kind of just the way it was. Um, so let's hear, let's hear about the christening day of the Northwestern. Well, that was at Marco Shipyard, which is right across the way here on the other side of the water. And and uh, I remember that. I remember it real well. And I remember my old man, I remember uh, driving down and I remember him uh, nervous as, a, you know, just all get out. He was nervous and I don't know what to say, you know, uh, what do I do? Cause he very, it was, he's a very, very humble man. But then, you know, like I said, he can be very outspoken as well, depending on your needs. <laughs> And uh, I remember him saying, uh, first thing he said was, you know, well, I'm not one for making speeches, but, and 
And I remember those words because I remember him so nervous driving down to, to make the speech. You know, you got your suit on. Of course, everybody wore suits. All dressed up. All dressed up. It was very respectable. Uh, 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 oh, who was the pastor now? Oh, she, oh come on. Uh, he's a fisherman. And, uh, oh, for crying out loud. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, uh, another Norwegian that was a, he was a fisherman and slash pastor. And so it'll come to me. But anyway, he, uh, you know, he was making the speech. I see his face. He was making the speech and, uh, and then dad did his thing. And, and I just remember, you know, how proud he was. So that was really something. And then of course, uh, you know, when the guys took off, uh, you know, you couldn't get out of town fast enough. So it was time to go. So that was always fun. And, you know, by that time, uh, you know, right around then is when I started uh, my own thing. And in the summers, you know, uh, we'd always try to go to Norway or at least, you know, our our grandparents on each side would either come to Seattle to visit, whether it was summer or winter. And then or we'd have to we'd go to Norway, of course. And so there was always that Norwegian connection with that town in Norway. And we would go. Uh, you know, it'd stay a month. Um, and I know that that for me, it was, uh, it was very, very important. It was, uh, it, it, you had a feeling like you knew who you are, where you're from, what you're all about, you know, your, your family, not just history, but your, <coughs> your roots, so to speak. And so that gave you, for me, uh, it gave me a, a feeling of, uh, belonging, but then it also it makes you wonder who you were because, Half of you is Norwegian and you're speaking the language for crying out loud. And the other half, you're, you're an American citizen, right? And, uh, and different cultures would clash. So you're growing up in a whole different culture, you know? And, and uh, so you, you, you kind of behave differently than a lot of the other kids that you hung out with in school, you know? Totally different upbringing. Um, so, uh, which I don't regret, you know, like a lot of the kids that I grew up with, they didn't have the six o'clock family dinner every day. Even if dad wasn't there, it was dinner on the table. If you're not there, your ass is grass, that type of thing. Uh, very traditional upbringing. So we're very fortunate to, to have that. And we do it to this day with our daughters. And my wife is the same mentality. So anyway, uh, uh, you know, by the time I was... 12 I think it was yeah then I then I was uh, we we're in Norway and I started poking around for for a job and you know we for fun even before then we'd pick like like uh, strawberries you know you get paid under the table for picking strawberries for the farmers around there potatoes stuff like that little odd jobs here and there and had such a good time over there because we were always fishing. I mean, we would build, you know, our own crab pots because uh, in that town, you're right next to the harbor where the, the herring industry was. And then uh, my grandmother's place was right there on the water. And so we were living on the water. I mean, you get off the plane and we're in a boat. We're, I don't, I, 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 as early as I can remember. Um, so we're always fishing. And then uh, I think I was 12 and I got a job fishing for uh, uh, mackerel and jig and cod. And that was through my father's cousin. 
and a buddy of mine, his name's Glenn Tony, he was over there, and we were just asking around, and I think he must have said to the old man that, hey, you know, these kids are asking for work, is that okay? Obviously, yes, we go out, like a, maybe a 25, 30 foot uh, wooden boat, and so you'd fish with net, you'd fish with uh, hook and line, jig, and then, uh, and you'd go out, and we'd stay out, uh, we'd go out early, depending on where he was fishing you'd come back in at night or we'd stay for a couple of nights and go island hopping from because they had different canneries facilities from one island to the next and so we'd overnight and he'd pay us cash and and you know you'd be 13 years old and you're doing that 12 and then uh <coughs> you'd uh you would uh pocket the money because it was cash and then you'd come in and have a good time um and a then, good time at twelve and thirteen. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, you 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 were making money. Now, by the time, so then, let me see. So then, at the age of, at the age of fourteen, then, I got a job, uh, with a guy named John Johannesson for Bristol Bay salmon fishing, and so, you know, I know I was always late for school because we'd come back from Norway late sometimes, or we'd go to Norway early. So I was always skipping out of school. Lucky me. Or trying to, depending on the, how we did. So if you went to Norway, I got that for a little bit of work, for a, a, a little bit, to, just to learn. And then uh, when I was 14, then I went salmon fishing with John Jacobson. And uh, that was a lot of fun because then I think I left early. I think I got to leave school early then. Did that. Um, and I remember another one of dad's friends, another guy that was here in Seattle as well, that moved his family over. His name was Tennis Peterson, who's the father to the guy that I was fishing with in Norway because we were the same age. And he was one of dad's best friends. Next thing you know, uh, he tells me, he goes, you're going to go work for John. He goes, the only advice I'm going to give you is uh, beat the other guy. You know, just beat the other guy. That's all you got to remember. And uh, I didn't understand what he meant. He got up there. Of course, we're picking fish. And, and John didn't like to use a reel like they, for, for red salmon, like they do today. You know, now some of these guys are, they're just amazing at what they do. They can pick, you know, two, three, four hundred thousand pounds of fish. They use a reel. You know, we were two-man crew. Now they got, Jesus, three, four guys on some of these 32-foot gill netters in Bristol Bay in Alaska. It's just unreal what they're doing. And uh, <laughs> so we have the reel on for king fishing and then take it off for reds, and then you're stacking the net on deck, and then you're picking through it. You're, you're hand pulling the net in. Yeah, so you hand pull the net in. You had a, you had a hydraulic reel, but then you still got to pull it in by hand and stack it. And then, you know, you're a kid. And then I understood what he meant. Beat the other guy. Because it was just him and I, another. Tim Mars was there the first time with me as a young guy. And then Sven was there for, for many years. And so I got it. Because, you know, the faster you pick, the more fish you get out of the net faster, the faster you can get the net in the water and, and make money. And then you want to beat the other guy. That was just incentive. But as a kid, when you program a little boy's mind, beat the other guy, you're going to fucking do it, you know? So I know by the time I was 16 and, you know, no offense, Sven, he just passed away. But, uh, you know, I was beating him and he was, you know, in his prime. He was and big and strong, but he had those big, you know, uh, sausage fingers 
Well, you ain't going to beat a little kid that's uh, full of piss and vinegar and little fingers that can really pick fast. And I had a trick. You know, you're not supposed to cut the web. And so the, John would always, like, we had these hook picking hooks. They had a little knife on the end, and he'd bend them over so you couldn't cheat. But if I really got buggered up, I would just put the hook in there, and, I'd, and I didn't let him spin it. So when I spun the hook, it would put so much tension on the web, it would bust it out of the gills, and I would get that. Plus, anything that was loose in front of me, I'm getting it into my side of the brailers right away. He's not paying attention. He wants to pick the fish out of the net, which you're supposed to do, which we did. But every time you can get one more in your side of the basket, you know, and it's laying loose, that's going in the basket. And I'm quick as hell because I'm a little guy, you know, young. And uh, I, I'll never forget when John was, uh, you know, we were offloading one time and John, he's just you know, smoking a cigarette and hat on and he's, and he's you know, speaking Norwegian because Sven was Norwegian too. He's just, ha, 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 ha. The, the kid got you, didn't he? Like he got you, you know. And then you felt like, wow, this is what it's all about. Let's go kick some ass, man. A compliments from uh, a Norwegian family in history. From what I've understood, talking to Tortolison and stuff, you you couldn't even fish for them. So getting one was a really big deal. Oh, that's really true. Yeah, they didn't uh, they didn't you know blow a bunch of smoke up here. You know what they uh, and that's just the way it is. They grew up the same way, and they're going to treat you the same as they were treated, and uh, and that's just how it is. And that's and that's okay as long as if you can get that one compliment. You've done your job. You know what I mean? Yeah. You've succeeded. You're not. You're never going to get an I love you from daddy every day when he pats your head and, and sends you off to school. Not going to happen. But if you get it one time, you're going to always remember that, at least the way I was raised. And so, uh, and I did get one finally. It took a while, but I finally got it. So anyway, that, that kind of really got me going. And then we went back to Norway. Uh, and then... Uh, you know, of course, I pack my stuff, uh, you know, your, your suitcases and all that to go and uh, with your family. <laughs> and, uh, of course, I packed my rain gear as well. And uh, and we went back out and, and I was fishing with Hans again, you know. And so I, I was double dipping that summer. And then uh, and I was always coming back home late to school. And... Uh, there's a there's a fellow by the name of Corey Ness who was also one of the owners of Trident who's historical. Legend. He's from the same island off the coast of Norway that my father's from and many of these other gentlemen here in Ballard. Legendary figure, Legendary. you know, and uh, and he's done so well uh, for his time and for his family and and uh, for the industry as, as a whole. Uh, you know, just you can't say enough about the man. <laughs> so. I remember, you know, uh, when we got back and had to go back to school, of course. And by this time, you're 14 years old. I, that was the last thing I wanted to do. Uh, uh, now I take it back. By the time I was, I would say 15, 16. That's when I really started resenting it. But uh, came back and Corey had stopped by our home because at the time a lot of the guys moved to the north end of Seattle from Ballard because they wanted the suburbs to raise their families and so a lot of these guys that were then influence uh, here in Ballard moved north uh, 20 minutes away which is where I live now uh, and that's only because of the suburbs and and school systems and all that stuff 
So I, I won't forget this either because Corey was at the house. We had been home and then he, he, he had made a joke or a chuckle to, to my old man or, and my mother. Said, ho, ho, ho. And there's the, there's the little one that's, uh, that has to pack a sea bag to go to Norway. He thought that was the funniest thing. If you're going to go on vacation to the old country to go visit grandma, grandpa, and, your, and grandma, you know, you're packing your stuff. You're not packing your rain gear and your boots. And he thought that was the funniest thing. He's like, that, there's the kid. You know, he's the one that's packing his shit to go to work. Yeah. He loved it. So I just, th those little moments in time you don't forget. But I didn't realize what he meant at the time until later in life. Yeah. Then I thought, you know what? And when I thought about him and, you know, then I thought, oh, that's, now I understand what he meant by that. So that was kind of cool. So then I remember that one summer we were fishing and uh, uh, and I was with Glenn again. And we'd been with him for a couple of years, whatever it was. And uh, <laughs> so same thing, you know, you're getting cash under the table. You're getting your money. And... Uh, uh, so we, uh, you know, we, we were going from town to town and then I know I was 14 for sure. Then, uh, we would go out at night. Um, and they had sometimes if it was on a uh, weekend, you know, maybe there was, you'd go to different areas. So there was different schools and different people. And you, you know, when you're done fishing, you came in, if you got lucky or early enough, cause you left so early in the morning that you could meet different kids in town. And so, you know, there was a, there was, I remember one girl we were chasing after and later on, all of a sudden I mentioned her name. I won't do it now. And then all of a sudden the Norwegian newspapers blew up and they went after this gal because they'd heard, you know, oh, that was a, a crush uh, of yours, of SIGs back in the day. <coughs> and then I remember we got in and so now we were, we were, uh, we were going to be like the big boys and, uh, you know, we were snooping around town. We were going to, we were going to find some, uh, vodka and we were going to, you know, be, be just like the big kids. And so Glenn knew a guy that knew a guy that was gonna, uh, get some of this stuff for us. And, uh, but it wasn't vodka. It was, you know, uh, what do you call it? Homemade brew. It was your, uh, uh, what do you call it? Moonshine. And in Norway, in Norwegian, they call it Himabrent, which is home, home burn, homemade. Home. And so, so we got all that stuff. Of course, it's in a vodka bottle, but it's garbage inside the bottle. And we thought we were, you know, going to be like men. And uh, so, of course, uh, you didn't have any, you know, to mix it with. There was either water or like they had seven up. And of course there was a uh, Coca-Cola. Um, and then the other sodas they had, at least back then, it was just like a, something they call champagne, champagne bruce, which is like a soda really wasn't much else. Um, <laughs> and, uh, of course our other heroes in life at the time who were maybe, I don't know, six, seven, eight years older, which, you know, when you're 14, that's a lot, that's a lot. And, uh, they were, you know, Glenn's brother 
was drinking vodka Coke. He started that, or one of them, and uh, and Leif, he was drinking that all the time. Leif, I shouldn't even say their names, but they're not going to deny it. So uh, his buddy, Leif Manis, he was drinking that. And and uh, and those guys were like, uh, you know, in their 20s, I guess, at the time, and older, so we thought they were the cool guys. And so we, we drank this vodka and Coke, and, and uh, we were out, out about town, um, and it was not a pretty scene. And uh, and I remember uh, a few years later, the guy that gave us that he, Brent, had been putting uh, rat poison in his uh, in his uh, moonshine because you know if you wake up with a hangover or your head hurts you think wow that was good stuff at least that's what you thought as a kid right mm -hmm. oh my head we're lucky to be alive and yes our head hurt like hell yeah and uh, so little did I know we found out later he's, he's spiking this stuff with rat poison so we were drinking, you know, and vodka Coke, you know, here in Seattle, that was, they called it Norwegian Champagne. That was the nickname. And uh, even Duffy used to serve it up here at a bar we used to go to. Um, yeah, so that's that was my vodka Coke story. I had to, I started off with rat poison and Coke. <laughs> and my head did hurt, so I thought it did a job, but little did I know it was killing us. So anyway, uh, oh, and before that, I also forgot. Yeah, at the age of 12, we were talking about the Northwestern. So yeah, uh, uh, I didn't get to go on the maiden voyage. A year later, I got to go, because back then, King Crab was was uh, much earlier on. You know, uh, I think they were fishing in even September, even before. Se well, they were fishing in September for Red King, but I remember I got to go fish St. Matthew's season at the age of 12. That's what I was doing as well. And so at the age of 12, uh, St. Matthew's, I think, was an August season. So I got to, I think I got to get out of school a little early for that one, too. And then we went across the Gulf. Now, your dad was running the boat? Yeah, he was running the boat so then. What was your job at 12 on the Northwest? I, I just wanted to be there. I didn't care. There's no job, just what are you going to do? And, uh, you know, he just, I think he took me along just because it's its your son. But it's like, okay, you can experience this thing and see what it's like. And uh, we'll see how it goes. So I don't think he took me seriously then. I know when I started salmon fishing, then, he, then it was under, you know, a different guy's wing. Then he was nervous for me. I remember that. He wasn't so nervous for me in Norway. But he was nervous for me when I went to Bristol Bay. Uh, or, I mean, for for, bear, for uh, salmon up in, yeah, Bristol Bay. And, uh, yeah, so it was 12. And they had a, you know, there was a makeshift bunk uh, on the port side here. And we had real bad storm going across. I remember that because the anchor was loose, you know, just pounding and pounding. So you'd hear this anchor just beating every wave. And uh, they couldn't get it tightened up for some reason. Um, really seasick. I mean, very seasick. Sick as a dog. And uh, <laughs> there was like a little drawer underneath. The make. It's a spare bunk over here we turned into a closet. 
and I I was vomiting in that drawer. I couldn't even get up, you know. And of course the guys would like, okay, kid, you know, no more of that. And uh, for days I remember laying there. And then I, I know dad had pity on me. So I really thought he was showing a lot of compassion and love because I kept falling out of the bunk. And then he, you know, we went out and got some kind of a plywood piece that was, you could smell it's full of oil or whatever, just disgusting. And he jammed that between the mattress and the side of the bunk where they kind of nailed it in so I didn't didn't fall out. So now I just kind of rolling around hitting the, the wall and you roll and hit that thing, but whatever. I thought it was nice of him, you know. I thought, wow, he really cares. Because <laughs> you never saw him because he's always up in the wheelhouse. <laughs> and uh, and then I remember, and I've said this story on the, one of the tapes we did, but, but I, uh, honestly, when we got into... Uh, when we got into Dutch, that was really a defining moment. It was, uh, it was just one of those moments where, you know, you just, when you see, you know, the, the, the mountains for the first time and you're coming in and all the boats and, and, and this is like 1978, you know, you see all these, uh, just all the action going on and all the boats that rank it up. You don't see it today. It was just really, it was like his own little city and just, you know, moving around. And so we had a lot of fun there, got in and, and, uh, fished, uh, blue crab St. Matthews. And that was, then I got over my seasickness. We went out and, uh, so at the age of 12, I, I was on deck and I got to experience that. And, you know, we were help sorting and stuff like that, but, uh, too small to throw shots and, and really do anything with the gear, mostly just sorting, but just being a part of it. Um, and I think that just shows a little bit of incentive. And so I think that went a long way. And uh, yeah, and then I did St. Matthew's again at like 15, 16, 17, 18, you know, whenever it was open uh, after that. And that's why the teachers didn't, Teachers were not impressed because you're always, you know, leaving school early if you went to Norway or you're late for school because of blue crab season. Mm -hmm. And they had, you know, like I know one year, one year we, uh, I was late and uh, they were, we were coming down from St. Matt's and that was always fun too because when you got, I can remember being up uh, up in St. Matthew's Island, and we were on strike for like, I think a, a week or over a week, 10, 10, 12 days, something like that. And a lot of my other friends that are in the fishing industry today were up there on different boats or family operated boats. And we're all around the same age. You know, you're 14, 15, 16. And it was like a city outside that little island as well, waiting for the strike to get over because they wanted a better price. It was never established in Dutch. And, you know, you have to deliver to a floating processor up there. You delivered up there. Some guys would take a chance to bring the crab to Dutch, but half of them would die because of the water temperatures and the time in the tank. And so that was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, even then we were... You know, we had, you know, one of your buddies had a skiff. And so you'd go from boat to boat and you'd visit all these different crews. And of course, when you're a teenager and you know other teenagers that are doing the same thing, 
you know, even my, my other cousin, uh, Jan, was up there that, that one year. Um, we'd go beachcombing. We were fishing. Uh, you know, we'd go in there and we were fishing uh, uh, trout. Uh, you know, I, I mean, these are these are little lakes and streams that have hardly ever been touched by man. You could go up a stream and literally start kicking them out of the, kicking them out of the stream, and we didn't have hooks or anything. We took our, our strawberry cans, we had like empty strawberry can on the boat, and we found some kind of monofilament or twine. It was just like a real thin twine we had out of something, and then I remember Roy was on board here, Breckenridge. He made, uh, he made just out of out of little nails, tiny little, and he'd make little hooks and file them down, and then we take like some of the you know little shavings from some of the crab line and make like a little what do you call that uh, a fly a fly and then you'd wrap your line around a strawberry can a little way and then we were just fishing them with that and i mean fish on so that's what we did during the strike so we did that and you know filled up buckets full of trout and and you know brought it back to the boat and and uh well gave it to other guys that were didn't have a skiff didn't get to the beach because not everybody had a skiff. Um, it was interesting, you know. Uh, when Great it, childhood. Yeah, I mean, because you were real free, you know. You, you could do whatever. Um, and then if guys did want to ride from one boat, because we've got to think after a week, if anybody had any beer on the boat, eh, it was pretty much gone. Because all the crews were sitting around. Well, what are they going to do? They're going to, if you could watch a movie, then you were doing that and having your beer. I mean, uh, you know... Like then, you know, if you had a VHS player, you that was a big deal, you know. Before that, it was Betamax, and uh, I remember filming a bunch of Hogan's Heroes tapes when the boat was new to send up uh, with my old man on Beta. Twenty five, thirty years later, the thing finally comes around to us, you know, because you trade at sea, you trade with boats, or you put them on a buoy and you float your tapes to another guy. You know, you, you trade during your seasons if you're going to have time to watch a movie. <coughs> so that was a lot of fun. And that's right. That one year I was late for, uh, yeah, I didn't go to Norway. I got to think about that. Wait a minute. Yeah, the year before I fished and then I went to Norway and came back. And then the year after that, I fished St. Matt's, I think. And that's when uh, we did the strike and had a, you know, and for me, that was okay because it was just, uh, you know, seeing everything on the island and, and combing for ivory and all that good stuff. And that was, this, I remember that was the same year when uh, we were one of the first boats up there. We were laying for anchor and we saw this antenna on the beach, uh, up on a hill. And so we took the skiff in. We took the skiff in. Oh, I think, I think, let me, let me backtrack. Before we got to save mats, I think we fished gnome red crab. I think that's what we did first. So I got to experience that, which is another red king crab season, but they're very small. So we went all the way up the Russian border through Big and Little Diomede, you know, went through there, went up to Nome, and we were, there's a, another island up there, 
and we got to meet some of the natives on that island, traded. Uh, there's just a couple of boats fishing up there. We traded for uh, like seal skins and things of that nature. You know, you gave them like diesel fuel and because they were searching for ivory artifacts. That's what it was. I think we did gnome first. And then uh, and then uh, fish that gnome. And that's a real shallow uh, uh, fishery. And so you're only fishing like a shot, right? I think they were like 20, 25 fathoms, something like that. They weren't real deep and uh, didn't get a lot of crab. And I remember going into, into uh, we were anchored up for a storm, got to go into Nome, which was really neat. And there was, uh, the storm was going, but the old man was like, come on, let's go. So we took the, he just wanted to use a skiff. Got in there. Of course, they went in for some Thunderbird. And uh, and I'm just, you know, pretty young guy. And I might be mixing up. This might have been when I was 14, 15, and the other one was 16. I can't remember. But uh, uh, go in there. And I remember going into one of the pubs there. And there was no, I think as long as you had an adult or something, you could go with them. But, but uh, I remember Dick Parker was up there. He's like, keep your head down, you know. I was like, forced my head down as we walked past the bar and I found a little booth and and uh, they got you know they had their thing had their deal and uh, and then uh, during that time there was a guy walking through and they were digging up the streets and Nome. the main the main uh, you know the main road the it's just mud but they're digging it up for whatever reason and they had sidewalks on either side and some guy, right before we got there, uh, like reached down, he didn't know what it was, grabbed like this rock, he thought, and it was a nugget the size of the palm of his hand. You know? Right in the middle of town in Nome. The size of the palm of his hand. It was just one of them stories you heard right after you got there. And I remember we left Leif Haugen. He was another guy from the same town, Norway, alone on the boat. <laughs> he's on anchor by himself, and he's freaking out you know because you're the anchor watch screw you we're going to town yeah. and so that was a lot of fun uh i think we stayed over the overnight there yeah because we couldn't get back out with a skiff something like that and then uh you watch thunderbird yeah yeah dad was a good guy <laughs> and then uh and then uh we fished can't remember where we offloaded uh, I know when we went island hopping up there, uh, you know, meeting some of the, you know, they were a lot of these, uh, you know, the, 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 the natives that were there, the villagers, they, they had uh, rights to, to dig. And, you know, if they dug up a, uh, you know, like a little ivory artifact, uh, I know they were telling us like one little ivory artifact in the burial ground was going for like $20,000 back then they were, they were selling, I think to museum or something like that. So they were there on their, you know, on their native burial ground <coughs> and they were looking for artifacts. So, um, you know, they were real uh, cautious about who was coming in. Or coming in and who was walking around. Of course, we befriended them and, and they were spending all summers long there, just man-made shacks, you know, I wouldn't even call it that. But uh, real nice people. And then... <laughs> Yeah, and I think after that, I think after that, that's when we went to St. Matthew. 
So we were there early, which makes sense. Yeah, we were there real early because we had just finished up with Nome. So then we're hanging around, and then we get back to this antenna story. So now all of a sudden, you know, we're just lucky we have a skiff on board. And uh, we see this antenna, and so we're like, okay, we're going to go beachcombing uh, there anyway, waiting for the rest of the fleet to come in. And we go up on the top of this hill and we see this little tent and we're like, you got to be kidding me. You know, this is St. Matt's. There's, this is a deserted island. Um, so I remember it was me and Fritjof and Menger, their name for it. Same town in Norway. And, uh, and we go up and, and it, was, it was funny. You know, we're like, knock, knock. You know, and this guy pops his head out of the tent. He looks like Grizzly Adams. I mean, you know, he hadn't had a shave in forever. And, and he's like, he thought he was hallucinating. What the hell? Who are you? You know, we're like, no, we're going to start our, our fishing season here. Who are you? You know, he's, and his name was U, something Houston. I forget. But we at the, at the time, there was, who was Matt Houston? It was on one of the, the television shows back then. God, Matt Houston. Anyway, uh, look it up. Matt Houston. It was on an old TV show. So we called him Matt Houston because he was from Houston. I think his last name was Houston. Something like that. This guy had been up there for, I think, two to three months. And he was, it might have been for, it was some kind of an oil survey, some kind of a survey for vessels uh, going in the area, something like that. And, and this poor bastard, uh, you know, his boat was on the other side of the island. They didn't have a skiff, so they couldn't come and get him. They were supposed to helicopter the guy in. That fell through. This giant antenna, it was the only, uh, you know, thing that he had. But but it was also, he had uh, like a million dollars worth of uh, electronic equipment for this survey that he was doing. And uh, so that was his baby. And we had the skiff, and he was like, oh, my God. And this poor bastard, I mean, he he was down to apples and water. And the helicopter could do a drop. They couldn't pick him up, but they could drop food or supplies or whatever. Maybe the chopper was break down at the time. And so it's like you're looking at your transportation, but you can't get, get to it. Maybe it's stuck there for weeks trying to get off the island. And here's these three kids with a skiff. Yeah, and we've got the skiff. And next thing, you know, and he's down to apples and water just starving to death. And, uh, and he had to walk across the whole island to the other side to get his supplies where they dropped him off. But he was stationed on the other side, you know. I forget how many miles, but it's quite a hike. So he was just sitting there waiting. No food or anything like that, barely. I think he had supplies on the other side, but, he, you know, quite a hike. <coughs> so we're like, well, we can get you a lift, you know. And this guy... We went uh, looking for ivory artifacts and all that good stuff. But if he had been there for like two, three months, you know, he'd picked up every... I bet you his backpacks were so full of, you know, ivory chunks that uh, make your head spin. Mm -hmm. And so... <laughs> so we get him back to the boat. And uh, obviously the first thing this guy wants to do is eat. And, you know, we've made a meal for him and... And... Uh, and I remember Fridge like, you want some ice cream? He's like, yeah, you know, you know, those big half gallon things. I'm not kidding when, I mean, this guy hadn't had that in months and he just dug into it. He ate the, he ate the whole thing. Just, just bang. It was gone. 
And then it was like, here's dinner, you know? <laughs> I mean, it was like, you know, you rescued the guy from uh, oh, Tom Hanks, you know, what was the movie? Uh, Castaway. Yeah, it was like Castaway. And uh, Poor bastard. Oh, I never seen a guy look like that or eat like that, ever. And, uh, and uh, we got all of his equipment down, you know, the, the spendy stuff. And like I said, you know, he said, oh, it was about a million dollars right there, which is just amazing. Yeah. And um, so this has got to be 78, 79, 80, something like that. 80, 80, I can't remember. 80, 81. Let's say 80, somewhere in there. Yeah, probably 80. Yeah, probably 81, 80. Anyway, and uh, of course we get him to his boat. And then we wait for the rest of the fleet. And then I think at that time we the, uh, we went on strike. Hey guys, I know you want to hear more. Um, we recorded for quite a while, so we're going to break this up into a couple episodes for you. But uh, I encourage you to like, subscribe, and go back and listen to previous episodes if you uh, if you'd like other seafaring stories. And uh, we'll uh, have the second part of SIGs next week. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to Galley Stories. We hope you like what the net brought in. Please leave us a review on iTunes, whether you like it or not. We're not fishing for compliments. Look us up on Facebook and Twitter, too, and reach out to us at galleystories at gmail.com.